what's it like to experience hyper growth in an agency? In my discussion with Dylan Ander, we go through what his experience was with that, how he's transitioned into actually creating software based on his experience. You're going to love the practical tips you hear in this one. Welcome to this episode of Agency Exits. Hi, Raj Jha with Agency Exits. I'm here with Dylan Ander, who's a founder of splittesting.com, which was a CRO agency for e-commerce brands. He's got a bunch of great brands under his belt from his agency days. Also played uh, NCAA tennis and is a certified tennis coach. Also has written several songs that hit the Billboard Top 100. So we have a real renaissance man here also who successfully exited an agency. Thanks, Dylan, for coming on today. My pleasure. So let's start with, I'm an old dude, you're a young dude. You've clearly done a lot in a, in a few years. Maybe you can just kick off by talking about how you got into the agency game, because it sounds like you started kind of right out of college. Actually in college. Well, first oh. off, they always say money knows no age. So I, I love that one. <laughs> so yeah, just a little bit on a quick origin story. I started my first drop shipping store. I went to Hofstra University in New York. I was in my junior year and one of my friends was ripping some Facebook ads when Facebook used to be a money printer at a 4X ROAS without even trying. And yeah, I took it down the route. He told me a couple of products to go test and try how to do it. And I said, all right, let's uh, go for it. I didn't have any money. Asked my parents for $2,000. I said, graduation, present, whatever, everything in advance. And within three days, I was profitable and didn't need the $2,000. So it was uh, I, I missed those off. days. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I missed the old Facebook days when you could do no wrong. <laughs> it was a lovely time to be in marketing. Not that yeah. now is any different. You just have to work a little bit harder and be a little bit smarter on what you're doing. So I think the bottom 50% is gone. That now just the top yeah. 50% of performers are competing for that same performance. So might be a hot take, but you know, not too much of. So yeah, I I had my first drop shipping store in college. I found a uh, Nextcore Media, which was my like generalist marketing agency, as I knew that it fluctuates up and down, right? Like for brands, mm -hmm. right? If you need to buy inventory, your cash flow position is lower, then you reinvest it in. Now you're making money back. And then like net net, you profit maybe 10, 15, 20 grand. And that's life changing for a 19 year old. So yep. uh, yeah, so I just always wanted to have the agency that I was like, okay, this is my stable income. And the mm -hmm. thing about agencies is if I could do it all again, I would choose stability over any other trait to have in an agency. You can have mm -hmm. speed, you can have growth, you can have profitability, just sustainability is what mm -hmm. I wanted. And that's what I got from the start where I had, they weren't the highest margin contracts, but we did SEO, I did Facebook ads, I did Google ads, I did YouTube ads, we did email marketing, like kind of like when you're first starting a really scrappy agency, at least when you're talking like 10-ish years ago, you find someone who needs something done and then you go find someone to do it, especially right. when you're a single solo founder. So those were the days it was really scrappy. We did absolutely everything of within marketing, influencer marketing, really kind of whatever someone needed. I had a friend who was good at it and I would pay them mm -hmm. less than what the client was paying me. And that's kind of how agencies run and that's how you make your margin. And from there, I actually exited two e-commerce brands, nothing nothing in the seven figures, but a life-changing amount of money for a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old myself mm -hmm. on both of those. Those were the drop shipping stores I started out of college. So I had some additional cash. I reinvested it into several ventures where 
I lost almost all that money for sure. So <laughs> I've started, I've started eight ventures before this current one that we're on right now. I started seven ventures, exited three, and four of them lost all my money. It's the constant up and down of entrepreneurship. I'm a true serial entrepreneur. I don't always recommend it. If there's anything in life that brings you fulfillment other than owning several businesses at a time, I now am a one business at a time guy. Yeah. So uh, it's a, a much better Yeah. The entrepreneurship thing though is... Uh, <clears throat> It does build confidence when you can say, okay, I know I can make money. And even though I might lose a bunch of it on some of them, it's I'm not starting. You don't have that same, oh man, I'm starting from nothing. Because you're not starting from nothing. You're starting from that experience base. And so getting that confidence early on is is pretty amazing. Couldn't agree more. It's a heck of a lot easier on the eighth time around than the first time <laughs> around. <laughs> so not to say that any new business is easy. They're all hard. But... I come with a, a lot more equipped, a lot more mm. tools in the arsenal to say the least, like you said. Yeah. So kind of, yeah, just continuing on in that journey. And then let's kind of continue on in the dialogue. We, I, I had a couple of, I had a couple services we offered and CRO was one of them. So for those who don't know, conversion rate optimization, other known as CRO, you'll hear me talk, say CRO a couple of times. Uh, CRO is just the whole art of making a website convert. That's the easiest way to say it. So it's through split testing, through site speed optimization, through UX, UI, copywriting, like kind of encompasses the whole art and science of making websites convert. So if a hundred people get to your website, how many of them actually buy? That is why you hire us. You do not hire us to bring additional traffic to your website. That's media buying, SEO, email, affiliate marketing. That's all the others. CRO, we're just responsible for the post-click, meaning once they get to your website, mm -hmm. Now it's our responsibility. So we had offered services ranging everything. And I ran split tests even on my like drop shipping store. I would like split test the headline. I'm like, well, I got two shots instead of one to find something more profitable. So it was never core to my thesis. But we then I got some really good advice from a friend who just said a real, real mentor. And they said, Dylan, of your five services, which are you going to be the best in the world at? There's, it's a commodity. A lot of people offer it. And I said, CRO thing, I really think there's just a special thing here. Anytime I run a couple split tests, it just makes stupid money for these clients. So mm -hmm. uh, I cut out all the other services and focus, focus, focus. Michael Wadden, he came from Accenture. So shout out to Michael. He just told me, Dylan, focus, 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 mm -hmm. focus, focus. And he just told me to keep focusing. And I focused down to just CRO. I had a massive contract with Geico, one with Planet Fitness. I let all of them lapse and mm -hmm. died, did a triple down into CRO because no one was really doing it much at the time. It was very early because people mm -hmm. still had a money printer on Facebook, but this could make them even more. So I went super broke that year and then super not broke the next year. So it was all worth it. So we, that's when we became splittesting.com, hyperscaled the agency really well. I brought on a CEO, Nick Harris. That's another part that I'm happy to talk about, like bringing on a CEO effectively. Really big topic for me. I got it right the first time where that's a horror story for a lot of other agency owners. And then, yeah, proud to say sold to Jared Belsky, the founder of Acadia. And now splittesting.com is the CRO arm of Acadia. Mm -hmm. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you chose to double down on <laughs> CRO because specificity, I often talk about specificity is really, really important. It, when your clients know exactly what you are an expert in, that really crystallizes everything. And that is like the first step to really growing an agency, whether it is vertical specialization. In my case, we just do legal or it is horizontal specialization. We just do this particular kind of service. So how did you choose CRO as the thing? 
The main thing was the results I saw and the market opportunity where I knew that from my time of, I don't know, 2014, 2015, all the way up to four or five years ago, 2019. So over five years, ad costs were never going down. Mm -hmm. So based on that assumption, I knew there was going to be some privacy war events a la iOS 14. And I kind of predicted that and doubled down on that because it was just a matter of time before ad costs just continued to get higher. They're never going to, maybe there's a short-term arbitrage on like a new platform like TikTok, but there's mm -hmm. no ads are only going to get more expensive over time. So that means it's more and more important to make sure your website converts to combat a higher CAC and CPA. So mm -hmm. that's really the reason I triple down on it. Other reason as well is there was just very little in the market. I put up mm -hmm. a blog post with two backlinks that was conversion rate optimization expert. And I got like a lead a week mm -hmm. and I just saw that it was a complete blue ocean that like no one was in. And that's why I decided to triple down. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because you know, every, every few years, there's another thing that you can stake, plant a flag on, right? So if you were a year and a half ago and you were in early on the TikTok ads game, then you could really plant a big flag on that. And we're always trying to predict the next thing. And, and it's, I think it's an interesting thought exercise for agencies that have not yet specialized to find out. And I like your, your concept of doing a blog. If you're doing a bunch of content, your content can lead the exploration of what people actually care about. So that, that's, a, that's a really interesting way of refining what should I focus on. Yeah. Nowadays, it'll be hard to put up a blog post and rank. Then <laughs> Social it was, it was definitely the idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. what what I still do sometimes for e-commerce brands is if I ever want to make a new brand, I do own two supplement brands like Guilty as Charged. I do have the other two businesses, but they have a CEO running them. So that's something really important to me. So I don't think about it much. What, whenever we want to run a new product or try a new product, we take new product images and we run $5,000 mm -hmm. of Facebook ads see what the CPA is. We see how the landing page template works. We see what it looks like. If it looks even remotely promising, we'll go get five to 10,000 units, pre-order and buy them, and then add them to the website. So there's always a way for you to test. And even mm -hmm. if you're starting out and have no money, do cold DMs. The same way you can split test a website, it's a yep. lot more work and a lot more time, but you can literally split test an outreach message. So whether you're doing cold email as outreach, Twitter DMs, highly recommend because even the highest of caliber people and professionals, they answer their Twitter DMs, to be honest, like they really do. <laughs> so that's like an underutilized area that I highly recommend if you're trying to do some prospecting and just along the same lines, shoot out some DMs, see what people are interested in. How can I help you today? Instead of trying mm -hmm. to pitch, say, Hey, I'm an expert in this area. How can I support you? I don't need your money. And especially right. you need case studies to start. So getting those case studies, even if they're unpaid and you just got to grind it out and do some free work to get some results and get to share on your website, that's what drives it. So it's kind of like, I call like the three case studies on your website is when people will actually start to believe you're an agency or a valid freelancer. Find out what offer people want, genuinely ask them, use DMs or cold email if you need to, cold call if you feel like it, land a little bit of work, figure out what offer people want. And number five is get three case studies. And then you're really ready to scale no matter how small or large. That's really what's required to start.
So, so talk about a little bit. So you did, you, you got your traction and then you scaled to the point of hiring a CEO. So talk a little bit about that transition, because I think a lot of agency owners get stuck in this no man's <laughs> land of the doing, the, the doing of the work, the getting of the work, and then running around with their hair on fire and not really understanding that the agency is something separate from themselves. So you kind of have to master that concept first. So maybe talk about how you evolved to that position and, and kind of the, the reframing that you have to have to do that. So this will be a very unconventional answer that I'm pretty I'm pretty sure no one else will give. I did a ceremony with a shaman and what I found my difficulty was, is that Dylan Ander and next core media were synonymous, both publicly, mm -hmm. but internally. Mm -hmm. And once I gave like myself permission to separate myself from next core media, it allowed me to give much more objective thoughts and objective decision-making, which that's kind of number one of your question. But number two, I was stuck in the cycle and most agency owners, if you guys are listening to this right now, I bet 90% of you guys are in the phase where you have a couple of people working under you, but you are the brain center. Mm-hmm. You are the one that is the expert, like the true subject matter expert. Let's say in CRO for me for a while, I had one QA person just to QA absolutely everything on websites, two developers, one UX designer, and one person to kind of help account manage of sorts and just operator effectively, but can also communicate with clients. So none of those people could do the job. Like every single thing had to go through me for a year and right. a half. And I wanted to rip my hair off, bang my hair against the wall which is probably where most of you guys feel. And getting that separation between being an individual contributor on every one of your client campaigns versus having a team to handle it for you, that mm -hmm. like chasm, like that schism or chasm is the right word. So that opening area to separate yourself from doing like one-on-one -on -one client work and like the work you put in is the amount of money you make out. The difference is one incredible hire. I had no idea how I was going to get there, but I had right. always had all the talent there. And when those days came that I landed two or three big clients in the matter of a week or two, made one of the calls, they gave two week notice, they were working for me full time within two weeks. So that's eventually to answer your question in a roundabout way to get to the CEO that you have. The biggest hack in the agency space, in my opinion, is there's a difference between A players and B players. But mm -hmm. there's even more of a difference between A players and A plus players. Mm -hmm. Very different. So mm -hmm. finding a true A plus player is someone who I would believe is superior of an operator to myself. Nick, who I brought, brought on, he has almost as many years of entrepreneurship and just leadership experience as I do on the planet. Mm -hmm. So my dad always told me nothing replaces experience. So I asked him what type of rate he wanted and I paid him above that. So the biggest mm -hmm. hack is to find an A plus player and pay them above the market rate that they ask you might hurt your margins to start, but then you will actually be able to remove yourself from these accounts and be able to be separated. So the, I think the, the thing that trips up a lot of folks with that though, is, is the, okay, well, that's great, Dylan, you, you were hyperscaling and you got those three clients and then you could pick up the phone and say, okay, now I know I have the money coming in. The money might just go out the door to someone else, but at least I'm building something that's not dependent on me. For somebody who's not in that position and it's a more incremental, it's okay, we're growing, we'll grow 10% next month. 
that's not necessarily enough to afford that kind of person. So how do you get out? How do you think about getting out of that trap if you, you know, weren't able to just stick a person in there that's paid for? For me, I have always had incredible profit margins. The four hour work week, I took it to heart when I first read it and looked for people overseas. Right now at heatmap.com, my current SaaS venture, I have 18 developers and they're almost all other than my CTO based in Ghana and Nigeria, which mm -hmm. most people don't think about those areas. It's extremely affordable. So what I did was I found some A plus players that were overseas. Every culture is different. So you have to find how to work best with different cultures. I would sit there and do 30, 40, 50 interviews of overseas folks from away from the US mm -hmm. and I would find my rock star. So right. that is something that you can afford if you are smaller on and earlier on. Mm -hmm. I don't care about geography. Geography no longer matters wherever you're from in the world as long as you can match the same time zone. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, so I built a team in the Philippines, which is you know, more common than Ghana, but I built a team in the Philippines for my agency. So yeah. I'm definitely familiar with, okay, well, why, why would this have to be done in the US? You can get some amazing people and actually help them in their lives in an amazing way, give them a, a multi-year path to actually get better at what they do and just give them the structure to do it. So I thought that, that that's a definitely a way that I took as well. So question for you, I think this is something that a lot of other people wonder, because there's a lot of people that have that old school mindset of just international doesn't work. There's a lot of people of the new frame, which really do. So for someone like yourself, where a lot of years ago, you were already like myself, like working with a lot of overseas folks, what did you find as what helped you find success in overseas markets in terms of labor? Because a lot of people uh, I find they don't know necessarily how to work with people from other cultures, like it's very hard for them. So what mm -hmm. did you find made the biggest difference for you culturally? Well, I'll say it was even harder because my agency was in the legal space. And so in the legal niche, mm. super conservative and language matters so, so much. So it was very, very difficult to have a Philippines person. Like They can have extremely proper language, but it's so proper as to be uh, not culturally correct for the industry. So I had to not only deal with what's unusual, building an offshore team for that in, at the time I was doing it, but also in the market I was doing it. So I started out by having them be backstage. So I separated the, the agency into front stage and backstage. And the account managers were US-based, but all the work was done offshore. So it was really a case of understanding what are we trying to accomplish and what will make a client not just actually successful, but feel like they are being handled by something of really high quality. So in my case, I had to put that separation layer there. I think in today's world, it's there's so many people with different language skills and different uh, cultures that it's much more accepted. But I think there's still a bit of a stigma for some agencies, especially if they're servicing larger accounts. And I, I wouldn't say that I have the answer to this other than if you can hire somebody who is who can be overseas, but have them just hire a really high-end person. Don't hire the, the cheapest that you can go. You're really going for what can they deliver is how I, I thought about it. Find the best person that you can and yeah. pay them above market. Yeah. That's well, yeah, exactly. Just, just like you said. And right, right now, I'm working with an, a, an American person who happens to be living overseas. You can do that as well. There's, and there's a geo arbitrage that can be had there for somebody who is amazing, 
but it's, and is it is American, but just happens to be living overseas. So you've got that as well. This, the, the world is so big now. It's, it is much easier to find amazing people. Yeah, I find that really insightful. That is pretty common where because the stigma, a lot of people feel like they have to hide their overseas team, like in the back yeah. end, right? Which mm-hmm. like I hate. I If the results are there and you guys are – and if I'm hiring an agency, the results are there. Personally, I don't care where anyone is from. If they're making a better mar- profit margin off what I'm paying them, great, rock and roll. If not, great, rock and roll. It's I'm getting paid for a service, which I hope – I know it's probably agency owners listening to this, but to any brand out there, even if you're an agency owner hiring another agency, who cares where they're from? Leave it alone. Right. Stop judging it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you have to ask the question, is, is the reason why you're not doing it your self-image or is it really about the results of the business? Because you might think that it's like, oh, that's not how I want to present myself. And your ego gets wrapped up in it when your client actually won't care. So mm-hmm. separating it's again, that's the, the, like you said, it's separating you from the business because you might care about it, but that's all in your head. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So tell me about a little more about that growth phase. So you find that CEO and then how did your life change in terms of what you were able to focus on at the agency once you were not in the hot seat for everything? So <clears throat> once I had my... There's two things that I would say led up to the hyperscale, which I think is really important to explain why the hyperscale worked. So first off, $100 million offers by Alex Hormozzi. If you haven't read the book, go read it now. It's about how to make, the the catchphrase is how to make an offer so good that people feel stupid saying no. Mm-hmm. With splittesting.com, right before I started making a personal brand, which is the thing that like changed my life and hyperscaled the agency mostly, is we have a double your money back guarantee. So if you're paying us 10,000 a month, if we can't prove statistically that we're making you $20,000 per month additional, you get a full refund. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a no-lose proposition. So right. we got good enough that we could offer that money back guarantee. And that way, no matter what, it's not a matter of if you want to go with us or not, it's a matter of do you want to invest in CRO or not? Do you want mm-hmm. to double your money or not? Who on the planet would say no to a guaranteed bare minimum of double your money or full refund? So right. having that offer first. And I never did outreach. I never did cold email. I never did DMs. I never ran ads. I never did any of that. All referral and word of mouth. Number two, there's a book called The Referral Engine. It's from the mm-hmm. early 90s. The two, the second two thirds of the book are going to be absolutely useless because it's talking about the how innovative blogging is. But the <laughs> first, the first third of the book is gold, and it's about the culture and how to act with clients on how to get referrals. So mm-hmm. there's a net promoter score of like how many people would recommend you to a friend. I had above right. a one mm-hmm. because I actually cared about my clients, and even when I was the individual contributor. On my sales calls, which is a great hack I recommend anyone to do, I say, all right, John Doe, if you work with us for four months, we hit our money back guarantee, and you decide to work on a fifth month, right? It's all month to month. If we deliver for you and I make you a lot of money, I'm not going to raise the price on you. I would ask for you to help me make more money. So I will expect two referrals. If I accept you as a client, and we do our job and you want to hire us for a fifth month, I'm asking you for two referrals. Can you agree to that now? 
no one has ever said no and no one has ever not followed through on that. Mm-hmm. So what I find is people would send me referrals in month two and three when we're doing a great job because I started that culture of referrals. So I right. grew to doing over a hundred thousand a month in top line revenue just on referrals. And that's it. Mm-hmm. From there, I decided, okay, something's got to work. One of my best friends is high up in the Twitter still actually till today through everything. And he goes, Dylan, let me show you how to write a thread. I had five mm-hmm. followers. I actually acquired a supplement brand, flipped it within 12 months and 10x my money. And I just wrote a thread on, here's how I got my conversion rate to 7%. If you look at me on Twitter, at Dylan Ander, you'll see my same pin thread. That pin thread, it was about a year and a half ago, went viral when I had five followers. Overnight, I had nine sales calls booked and closed 40K of MRR from that one post when I had five Twitter followers. I could talk about content forever, but growing that personal brand, even still through today, I get five to seven inbound calls of eight and nine figure agencies. We're still hyperscaling. And that's how we hyperscaled is getting five to seven beyond qualified leads for 10 to 25K a month retainers inbound. They already knew who I am. They trusted Mm me. I sent them to my agency. Eventually, I couldn't do both at the same time. So I brought on my CEO at that time. So that's kind of the timeline of those two books, mm-hmm. making, getting the referrals down, growing to a certain level, starting the personal brand that blew up. And then the agency blew up. All right. So let's take one of those. Let, I want to dug, dig into these because I think there's a, there's a ton of value in, in what you're explaining here. So referrals. So obviously, I, I'm a former attorney and I came from the legal marketing world. So referrals are huge for that. So I've always been a big advocate of referrals. I don't know that that's the only engine you can rely on forever, but certainly in your initial growth phase, it is, I think what you're doing, the point I want to stress and and the, the genius of this is you're setting the ground rules of the relationship from the beginning. If the, if you're asking for a referral afterwards, then it's almost, it's not really a part of the relationship versus what you did there, which is set it at the beginning. So that's, it's a, it's a really smart way of doing it. So I want to highlight that one. And, and in general, growing by referral, especially when it's just you and you don't have that full team is a much more controllable way of doing it because your sales cycle is so much more easy from a referred client versus a cold client even with content marketing, which is fantastic, but like referred clients, they are by far the easiest to close. So you're, you're going to decrease your time selling by doing referrals. And if you're the only, you're, you're the guy in the hot seat and you don't have a CEO, that is, that is definitely a way to go. So I, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that. I just wanted to, to highlight those, those things because people don't appreciate how powerful that can be when, when you're just a solo founder. It's it. Even till the day that you're hopefully have 500 employees, it's super crucial. And then number two that I would focus, like you said, setting that up, setting up the culture of the relationship. The mistake that I've made so many times early on is over communicating to an, a literally annoying level to the client saying, I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand what's coming. Just shove it down their face exactly what they're going to get and when, and just follow mm-hmm. through on your word. So beyond setting the culture for expectations, you want to set the culture that you're going to deliver on time, mm-hmm. set the culture that your work is going to be quality, set the culture that there's two-way communication. If they're feeling upset, they have to come to you. Setting up the ability that 
if we feel they're being a poor client or not implementing what we're recommending in other areas of their business, that we get to call them out, that I mm -hmm. get to go to the CEO and tell them if I think one of their employees are underperforming and the same way the CEO or point of contact head of marketing, whoever point of contact is that they can come to me saying one of my team members are underperforming. So mm -hmm. just setting the culture of a partnership. Yes. You're just, you're just getting paid to do a service, but there's also parts to make a relationship deeper that setting all of that up front. I literally have two different pitch decks like or well, slide decks together that I would show on an onboarding call. One was before they signed the contract. Do you agree to these terms? I literally, it's literally called like the, the it was next core media at the time, but the next core media culture contract. And there was mm -hmm. just 10 bullet points, kind of like the, I think there was 12, kind of like the 10 commandments of sorts of just, this is what our relationship requires. And I literally sent a different DocuSign for the culture agreement as I did the actual like legal agreement. So mm -hmm. Having them sign that, that's something I cannot recommend enough. Like you just do it once. It'll take you, I don't know, two, three hours, maybe reflect on yourself and what you want a good relationship to look like, but setting everything up front and I could talk about it forever, but that's, that's what kept my retention high and you can hyperscale and sign a lot of clients, but if you don't retain those clients, you're going to stay flat. Yeah. Churns a bitch, right? I mean, because especially, so We'll we'll talk about more about CRO in a second and how sticky it can be because that's like you know that's one of the biggest levers out there. But just from a, a relationship standpoint, regardless of the kind of agency, the one one way to decommoditize is to be able to <clears throat> contribute to their company's growth in other ways. So whether it is calling out an underperforming employee, contributing to how they are thinking about revenue, and in other ways, that's an intangible that it's going to be very hard for some other new and shiny agency to come in there and say, oh, either we'll undercut you on price or you're going to try another thing. If they have a relationship with you where you've been making them not just money, but you making them be better about their own performance. I think that that is a crucial distinction that, that you dug into early. One, one, yeah, I, the culture and communication, those additional things that you could do beyond I had a tweet that went a little viral two days ago, and I said, my competitive advantage in business is that I actually give an F. <laughs> and that really is it because it just permeates into every other area. I'm not trying to, I really care. I don't know if like yeah. it's something you're born with or develop or not. Like I've just always cared too much a little bit and it's driven me nuts as an agency owner. And that's why currently I'm not an agency owner and chose not to because it just was too much for me. Yeah. So well, that's kind of, you take on, you take on the responsibilities of running a business, the responsibilities of the people working for you and the responsibility of all of the clients. It's, it's the, it's, it's the huge amount of weight on you. If you really care about the results. That's, that's the reason I brought in my CEO originally. Mm -hmm because I learned very quickly the services business brought me to where I am now. I'm now mm -hmm. ready to move to my next chapter. I still sell all the time. Still definitely give me a call if you need CRO for splittestin.com. <laughs> but beyond that, I just realized I hold too much empathy sometimes. And I'll take it like personal if a client leaves. Mm -hmm. And that's something that if you're going to make build a long lasting agency, if that's, that's an early indicator that it might not be the best fit for you of your long, if we're talking a 20 year time horizon, yeah, in right. 20 years, you might not be running a service business if it like hits you in the heart when someone leaves. Because for me, it like ruined my entire day for like up until yeah. maybe a year and a half ago. With Nick, who I brought on as my CEO, at that point, 
I just learned this is not for me. I'm going to either burn out. I probably burned out twice a year when I was the only individual contributor and just was sick on the couch for two weeks and had to eat ice cream and watch movies because I couldn't do anything else, <laughs> which is be careful in those areas. But once Nick was on, I realized just I'm a very strong leader, but not a strong manager. And mm -hmm. the two things are very different. And I'm sure very you different. probably have a lot to say on that. I'd love to get your opinion on it. When the leadership role versus the management role, because I, I can code, I can design, I can talk to clients, I can close sales, I, I become a micromanager. And it's not right. fun to work under me because, and I just learned that that is not an effective management style. So I brought in someone who is a world-class leader and manager who's Nick mm -hmm. and that's what helped us scale truly when I was able to not be in the seat of having to manage directly. Yeah. I, I think uh, I'm there with you. I, I probably, I'm, I don't think I'm a very good manager. I've had to put a lot of processes in place to force me to become a better manager, but it doesn't come naturally to me. That's not the kind mm -hmm. of thing I'm very much interested in, in <clears throat> conceptually, where does the organization go and exploring what's the best way to go there and the strategy around that and putting all the chess pieces on the board but then kind of executing to the level that a manager needs to on a daily basis to make sure that you are growing your team and you're giving them opportunities to grow. I know it's important. It's just not where my head naturally goes. I'm too focused on like the end result. So that's, that's what I, so I hired a COO to mm -hmm. fill that role because I knew that that was a, a shortcoming that I had. So question for you. I'm sure there's a lot of people where management does not come naturally. What have you done? Because I haven't really embraced that skill and worked on it much because I'm just tripling down again on what I am best at, which is doing CRO and innovation and leading <laughs> to someone who's not strong at management. Maybe you have some good advice for me, even personally, what do you recommend to people where management does not come naturally and how to become a better manager? I, I think it came down to what kind of organization do you want to run? And what is your personal culture and culture fit for the organization? So the way that I think about it, the way that I have dealt with it is I've made everything very black and white. So a, a culture of extreme accountability and the accountability, because I'm going to try to attract A players or A plus players, as you mentioned earlier, who want to hit a certain benchmark and just been very clear about what that benchmark is and very clear that the culture is not a water cooler culture, right? It's like when I'm in work mode, I want to talk about the project and I want to get things done. And that's a certain kind of person. And there are people like me out there and I want to attract those. There are folks who want to spend half of their day talking about what they did in the weekend. That's not the right culture. Trying to attract people and making it very clear in the interview process and in the onboarding process, here is what the performance is that we're trying to hit. Here's what success looks like. I'm going to rely on you on the how for the success, but this is what it relies on. And everyone is going to be judged on what those success criteria are. And we're going to be very transparent. So it's a culture of hyper accountability is what I've got to is the way that I can manage. Now, I don't think it's right for everybody. Um, I've also not run very large organizations. I've managed most 100 people in my career. So it's not something that I've done to the 1,000 person range, but I've, been, I've managed at least now to do that. So I don't know if that's helpful uh, to people, but that's how I think about it based on what my personality and my aptitude is. Well, I find it interesting how you answered it because you almost answered it not by speaking about how to become a better manager, 
but how to put a better culture around you that your maybe subpar management skills are not as much of a drag down on the company. Yeah, it's about process. It's uh, See, I, I'm a process thinker and I think, okay, well, what process do I need to get to this result? And that process might be finding the right people to be in there and then putting in place something where it's, okay, we can have a discussion on a document about you are trying to achieve this. This is what success looks like. If it, we're not getting there, what have you tried? And giving them runway. But if they're not hitting that, then it's either they don't have the capacity to or I have communicated poorly. And that kind of flushes out the problem for someone who is perhaps less socially intuitive like me. Mm -hmm. Love that. So, yeah. So that, that's how I think about it. I, I want to return to, to something that, that really intrigued me that you mentioned recently, which was personal brand. And you talked about a couple of Twitter threads that went viral and just to relay my personal branding story with the agency, I went on turbo with personal brand and all kinds of media, YouTube and Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, and Facebook and LinkedIn. And I did a full court press for multiple years doing that. Um, the downside of that, that I did at least, is it was so tied to the agency that when I sold the agency, I essentially had, I was very well known in one market, which was not going to be my next market. So I didn't separate that well. I, I fully admit I did a very poor job of, I had a name and I was very well known in one industry and it was non-portable. So uh, tell me about what you did and how, how you've evolved that and how you think about personal brand. Cause I think it can be very powerful, but there are some nuances to it. There's a lot of nuance. One, I was actually DMing today with someone who said, it's zero followers. And he said, Hey, I'd love to make a partnership with, you know, your SAS. I promise I'm a real person, even though I have zero followers, I actually own a very large agency. All my biggest deals and everything have kind of brand owners have come from people with less than like 50 followers, which is kind of mm -hmm. crazy. So it's being able to track those people who are lurkers and watching and to make sure that you're the one that stands out. So I could never bring myself to make a personal brand. I made a lot of blogs and a lot of thought leadership mm -hmm. through blogs. That's something that I found because you're a subject matter expert before you're a successful entrepreneur. It just mm -hmm. can't happen that way. You can't go straight to being an entrepreneur. So you got to get good at something before being an entrepreneur. And if not, go get good at something. Right. <laughs> so when you're good at something, you can write about that thing a lot. But I always felt like a fraud and I wish I hadn't. Because I was like, well, there's people that are making a hundred thousand times the amount of money as I am. Who am I, the authority to tell people what they should go do on their website and things like that. Now that I built like an eight figure agency around it and all of that, people listen a lot mm -hmm. more intently than if I was a freelancer. And that's where mm -hmm. a lot of people get stuck. So it's kind of chicken before chicken or the egg kind of thing where you can either grow your agency first and then start posting because I've acquired four businesses and exited three. Optimized over a couple billion dollars in e-commerce revenue. You put that in a bio, you're probably going to listen to someone like that said humbly on my mm -hmm. behalf, which right. is just someone that someone wants to learn from. So there's that on both sides. And then number two, Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about native content. And mm -hmm. I think this is probably... Probably the first time I'm saying this on a podcast, but I was born with Tourette's. So you can probably see I blink a lot more than usual. When I was younger, it was 
heck of a lot worse, but I didn't always used to love being on camera because I was pretty self-conscious of it. So that's why I wrote blogs that always ranked number one, because I would write bonkers level content with crazy detail and give gigantic instructions on what to do. They would rank number mm -hmm. one instantly on any, no matter what site I had. So for me, Twitter was like a next thing. So you have right. YouTube, you have LinkedIn, you have Twitter, you have Meta just to post on organically, Instagram to post on, TikTok to post on. There's so many. And figuring out the platform that is best for you, your lifestyle, your knowledge mm -hmm. base, who you're trying to target as potential customers, all the above. So for me, Twitter was just the best match, like quick things that come in. I do something called a CRO hack every single day. I started mm -hmm. CRO hack number one when I started. I'm almost at 300 right now. Uh, and I just do one a day and maybe one or two other tweets. And that's just it. That's the series. People follow me for a giant thread once a week and a CRO hack just every day of what to do and uh, something I learned from a split test. Oh, that's great. I, I have a series called How to Fail at Business. I think I'm at 439. So that's like, what are all the things I've done wrong? How can I protect you know the past me from these problems? I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I think personal brand is underappreciated because a lot of the agency owners I talk with, their marketing is bad or non-existent. I, I guess it, it's just they, they really don't have anything outside of their website, which uh, how am I going to validate you in today's world if you are not putting out stuff that I can read or watch and see how you think? That's, that's I, I think, a big missing piece of a lot of branding for agencies because it is a people business in essence. It's a relationship and people business, and it's a trust-based sale. And to not have those trust-building materials out there, uh, testimonials, like you mentioned before, very important. But I would say just as important is, can I get a sense of this person before I even talk to them? Because if you can mm -hmm. do that, if you can put that material out there, your sales process becomes so much better. I, I, I remember the, the one of the last clients I had before I sold the <clears> agency, um, but we were, I was on the pitch and he's like, yeah, you, you don't really need to pitch me. I, I've already watched about 20 hours of you on YouTube. I'm like, okay, I guess my deal then. So it, it's, it really does change things a lot. I, I couldn't agree more. I'll actually give you a, a friendly pushback on people knowing you before. The way I view it is just be unapologetically yourself. Like I'm mm -hmm. a pretty forward New Yorker. So I, do come across kindly but forward on Twitter in a lot of ways. And I feel like people are just going to get to know you by getting to know you. Instead of putting on like the thing on social media is a lot of people try to like Ty Lopez did with renting a giant house and cars. And if that's natural to you and that's your lifestyle, go for it. Right. But do not be anything less than yourself because then when they talk to you, it's going to be like, what the heck? So it's kind of yeah. like a, an and statement to yours, but I view it just a little bit differently, which is just when you're unapologetically your professional self, they will naturally learn. And when you jump on a call, I heard once a, a lie or a secret or an embellishment is actually you're hurting yourself because then you have to keep up that lie or that code switching or whatever you want to call it and just being yourself. So you don't have to try ever right. you're just yourself always. Right. So that's right. one big tip that I've always given. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's a, that's a good unlock there to, if, if you're just yourself and you, you're not making anything up. And like you mentioned earlier, talking about your expertise and that expertise changes over time, right? It might be at the beginning, it's like you're doing the thing and you're talking about the thing. And then now you can talk about, okay, I've grown these companies. So I can talk about 
M&A and I can talk about the acquisitions I've done. I can talk about my exits. I've I can talk about how I generate revenue and margin, all those things, which appeal to a different audience than the how-to stuff. But, you know, if you're always talking to the person who's one year behind you, two years behind you, you've got a fantastic pool of people to do business with. Couldn't agree more. And also for personal brand, it does so much more than just get you clients. Mm -hmm. That I just can't recommend it enough. It is the highest ROI thing I have. I exited my company, my agency for a very large amount of money. What's still with me? And I can print businesses with my personal brand. It's the mm -hmm. best asset I have. I'd take, yep. I'd take my audience over 5 million cash right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. And, and I'm coming around to last year, I came around to, okay, well, I sold my agency, which was about three years ago, and then trying to do deals with a personal brand that didn't exist because it was related to something else was really hard. And that's when I restarted it. So I can definitely say I'm a big believer as well. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what, about heat map, because you've taken your agency knowledge and your domain expertise and you've instantiated in code now, right? So you've gone from services to product. And for several of the folks that I've talked to on this series, they've done exactly the same. They've used a services business to really truly understand what a market wants or what a market needs, and then built another kind of asset, whether it is at the same time as the agency or after the agency. And I think that's, I, I love that because here, I'm here in Silicon Valley and the amount of money that gets thrown at things uh, concepts and ideas that have never actually met the market is absurd versus learning from the actual needs of the customer, which is what you're doing with a bunch of my other uh, guests have done. So talk a little bit about that, that transition, both how you got the idea and how you started on the product side of things, because yeah. I think it will be fascinating for people to, to see that evolution. Yeah. I, my lead investor in my seed round for heatmap.com, he said, right before he wired the money, right before he signed, he goes, Dylan, I'll give you a piece of investing advice. Never bet against someone who has worked in an industry and built and exited a company and is starting their next one in the same space. If mm -hmm. I was making a legal tech, let's say I saw an opportunity from afar of a legal tech product. No, you would crush me because I would take two to three years finding product market fit. For you, mm -hmm. day one, the pain points in marketing, in legal, your lawyer yourself, you said, you're a renaissance man too on that side. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's really exactly what I did. Heat maps are a big part of understanding. For those who don't know, heat maps are what you look at and you can see on your website where people are clicking. So that makes mm -hmm. engagement. It's really useful to see where people are engaging on your website and also watch screen recordings of where they're going through and the experience they're having with your website. That's all about user experience or UX. What always bothered me about these is that clicks does not mean revenue. Mm -hmm. Clicks don't pay the bills. Clicks revenue. ain't cash. Clicks ain't <laughs> cash. Not at all. That's, that, there's your hook. <laughs> yeah. Clicks ain't cash at all. So I wanted cash means cash. So I, it took me almost a year and a half, 18 months of product development, working on the patents and building with a team of, at the time, 14 full-time engineers. I acquired a dev agency and mm -hmm. the founder is now the CTO of heatmap.com. And he had 34 employees. Now we're down to 28 because some of them work on other projects, but like they're all on heatmap.com now. So that's kind of what, what we did. That was a unique 
opportunity because I was his biggest client and I was like, come work for me. So that one kind of <laughs> worked on the, on the flip side of the agency. And I just always needed this tool. I always wished that mm -hmm. there was someone who just built the tool that showed revenue on a website. So mm -hmm. for heatmap.com, we had to rebuild all of Google analytics. And eventually what our product right now is that we're the first heat map in the world that has revenue attribution on every single element on your website. So now we're also having it coming out for lead gen as well, kind of like for lawyers and a lot like that, where right now you can see revenue per click on an element. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get that number on any software on the planet. We have custom groupings. We have about... We right now we have three tech patents that we put out that are yeah. highly defensible things mm -hmm. that others won't be able to copy in that regard. So I just took the pain point of, I don't know what clicks are leading to revenue. And although that sounds like a super small niche, like really small little problem, the TAM total addressable market is every website on the internet, right? Who wants to improve? Yeah. I could talk about heatmap.com forever, but if you guys are looking to uh, make more money, sign up for heatmap.com. It's that simple. <laughs> and we've got AI also that tells you how to optimize the site, points out conversion killers and revenue drivers. Uh, once you put it on and you have it for about a month, just sitting there, whip open the AI insights and it'll literally tell you what's hurting your conversion rate and what is driving revenue. So it's a pretty no brainer. If that, I, that, I is, think so myself. That, that is pretty awesome. I, mean, which I, I mentioned earlier, the big levers, right? And CRO is one of those big levers. So if, if you're fighting against ad costs, et cetera, that, that is definitely, so you're definitely planting your flag in a in the right place for the ad environment. And uh, let me ask about, so you, you said you acquired a dev agency in order to do this. Was this, was that intentional? Because I, I think one of the stopping points for people is, okay, I'm an agency owner and I'm not a technical person, right? So it's like, now I need a technical co-founder if I want to do this. But the other way is you, you can acquire that talent, right? So you can actually just acquire. So talk a little bit about how you thought through that problem, because you don't have to be the technical talent. You just have to have the technical talent on the team at a high enough level to actually be good at product. So talk about how you thought about that problem and solved it. So I just, I, I consider myself a very lucky man. I think I just do the right thing. My Jewish mother says I do a good job a lot. So I feel like I've just gotten lucky so many times. I used to work on a lot of crypto accounts back in 2016, 2017 at the ICO boom. And I'd met a guy who I hired for a project. And luckily enough, six or seven years later, he still was in business and doing great for himself. And I said, Hey, I have a massive idea. Are you able mm -hmm. to do this? He said, I need a, he said, give me a month. I need to staff up for a vision this large. And mm -hmm. he staffed up. I became every month we would add more developers and more price and everything until I became more than half of his revenue. And he had two or three pain in the ass clients that were maybe mm -hmm. 10, 15% of his revenue. And there was like three or four contracts that were passive for him that he didn't even have to touch. So I said, do you believe in this? He said, yeah, this is a multi-billion dollar opportunity. I said, cool, you can keep your cash flow. I'm going to own the entity. I want to be able to pay all the developers and the team directly, and you will own a percentage and be the CTO of heatmap.com. Three seconds later, I got a yes, drafted up paperwork, and it was done. So mm -hmm. I just make the most of every situation and see how everyone can win because he wasn't happy having to run sales for every single new client and do the, right. the agency thing for him. Like the same way he's ready to be in a technical founder role that like he's really ready for. So that was how that whole one went down. It's a unique one. I don't think it's a, 
I mean, maybe it works if you have an email agency and you send so many referrals to them that at some point you say, hey, I think it makes sense for us to either merge or come together. Like just always be open-minded on how you can win together with people better because a piece of a watermelon is better than all of a grape. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's an important lesson in thinking out of the box, right? Thinking that you have to hire the technical co-founder and then go hire a team onesies, twosies versus saying, how do I solve this at a high level as I, I just need this thing developed? Well, I get it to a dev agency. Okay. Well now how can I actually just bring them under my umbrella? So I think it's a, it's a great way of just for anyone doing it in agency, instead of thinking, oh, we're, we've got this service. Now we want to add this bolt-on service because we're, we're not going to get distracted, but we're big enough now to do a bolt-on service. The linear way of doing this is to think, I'll hire an individual who can do this. But that only gets you so far because then you still have to understand that that person's doing a good job, that they can hire, that they can expand, or do you just bolt on an entire small shop and say, they've already proven with clients that they can be successful at this. And that's a much easier way to grow, even though it sounds harder, it sounds more challenging, it's more likely to be successful than you not knowing something about an area and attempting to be a manager of it then. One, one other thing building directly on that, everyone who knows me knows I'm always buying businesses that are less than 5 million in valuation. Mm -hmm. If there's a company that has anything to do with MarTech or an e-commerce brand, send it to me. I get inbound three or four deals a week that are all super viable. I've learned to say no and let let go of my shiny object syndrome, say the least. <laughs> That's um, hard. But even if you're a small agency owner, a little bit of a white lie saying that you're interested in buying something, even if it's no money down, doesn't matter. You're still interested in buying a company. Mm -hmm. I've met so many incredible people that way because you speak directly with the founder straight on. You build a relationship. They look at you in a certain light, the same way a personal brand looks at you in a certain light. If they see you as an acquirer, they're just going to look at you differently. And yep. there's an incredible book by Nathan Latka, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital. It's mm -hmm. how to do no money down deals, how to put very little money down to be able to acquire companies, how to think very creatively about it without having a lot of money. So I read that book and immediately went to one of my clients. And I said, what do I need to do to be a 50-50 business partner in your business? Is I don't really know you too well, blah, blah, blah. I said, <laughs> what do I need to do? to own 50% of your business on paper in your LLC. So, I don't know. Can you quadruple our profits? I said, <laughs> deal. And I for I forewent my service fee because I saw how much how bad his website was and everything of the sorts. Right. And his media buying was off and he had a horrible agency and I went and ran the ads myself and I quadrupled it. And business partnership ultimately fell apart, which was the demise of the company. But I did get 50% of the company <laughs> like I did. So it was like no money down and I got 50% of a quickly growing company. Yeah. So well, you asked the question, how can I, right? It's, it's instead of saying, instead of ruling it out, you say, I want that. How can I do this? So I think that's a, that's a, it's an important reframe. Love how that. To do this. Yeah. Good. Well, Dylan, you've shared a ton of really 
great golden nuggets here about growing and your perspective on things and then transitioning into being a technical technical entity where you actually are building asset value in code, which is a very different kind of thing from an agency. So I hope people have taken inspiration <laughs> from this. Any any final words you want to, words of wisdom that you want to impart on agency owners who are watching this and are thinking that they'd like to follow your path? Yes. So if you see right back there, it takes 500 books to be a library and to get a stamp by a National Library Association. We have about 350 books, my fiance and I, this, this is our house. And so I'm a big reader, two thirds of hers. The bottom one is mine. It's still a lot of books. There's a couple of books that changed my life as well. I gave you guys the referral engine. I mm -hmm. gave you guys four hour work week, which is a classic. The two that I'm going to recommend as well, one is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Mm -hmm. He's an FBI hostage negotiator, and he starts every chapter chapter with an FBI hostage negotiation situation and goes into how it applies to your daily life. It's changed how I market. It changes how I do customer feedback surveys. It changes how I communicate in my daily life. It changes how I manage. It changes so much about my life. And then number mm -hmm. two is Built to Sell or Build to Sell. So mm -hmm. Build to Sell is a book. It's a narrative nonfiction. So it's a story and it's 80 pages. It's a really fast read. Even if you're not a big reader, please read Built to Sell. It's about actually an agency owner mm -hmm. who had a bunch of services. I don't want to ruin it too much, but he focused and he made a lot of money. To any agency owner out there, I don't care what size you guys are, you need to go read Built to Sell. Mm -hmm. So that those two, I'm not smart. I just read a lot. Yeah, that's kind of my final mic drop, I'd say. So follow me at Dylan Ander on Twitter. That's where I always hang out. If I can ever support you guys in any way, I don't charge for consulting. I don't need your money. I just want to help the community when I... When I die, I want to be known as the guy who's helped as many as possible. It's why it brought me joy when he wanted me to jump on the podcast. Yeah, I'm just here to support. So DM me on Twitter, email me, Dylan at heatmap.com. I'm here to help. That's really it. Just awesome. email me anything. And if I don't know the answer, I'll introduce you to someone who probably will. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dylan. Pleasure, Raj.